Hi, welcome back to Historical Friction. My name's Alice Proctor. I'm a writer and art historian. And this week I'm joined again by Sarah, who's one of our regular co-hosts and guests on the show. We talked about a book, which is not something we've done before. We had a really nice time discussing Beauvalet by Georgette Heyer. If you don't follow us already, you can find us on Twitter at History Friction. And we're also on Patreon at Historical Friction if you feel like helping us out. Huge thank you to all of our friends who already support us there. It makes a massive difference. But if you don't want to give us financial support, then it's also incredible if you can just leave nice reviews and things like that wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. We're very lovely. Enjoy. There were candles in sconces upon the walls. The stairs ran up to one side. To the other, a door opened hastily. Don Diego came out, a snatched-up sword in his hand, a look of quick alarm in his face. Let none enter, he said sharply, and then started back. Hezu, he gasped, blanched and shaking. His eyes were wide and staring, looking fearfully. In the doorway stood El Beauvalet, tall and straight, fiendishly smiling, like avenging doom wafted thither by most dreadful witchcraft. The candlelight flickered along the blade of El Beauvalet's sword. He held it between his hands and bent the supple steel to a half-hoop. Don Diego's fascinated eyes saw the white teeth gleam. "'One has entered,' said Sir Nicholas. He came into the hall, purposeful, a stalking terror. "'I have the honour of presenting myself to you, senor, in my true guise.' He stood in the middle of the hall now, feet wide-planted. I am El Beauvalet, Don Diego, and I come to seek a reckoning with you. His voice rang out, his beard jutted dangerously. Don Diego was backed against the wall. Witchcraft, witchcraft, he muttered, and the sword trembled in his hand. The chin was upflung, the gay laugh rang amongst the rafters. Ha! You think so indeed, villain? He let his blade straighten with a quivering snap and shook it in Don Diego's face. Come, pigeon-livid hound, here are no arts but my sword to yours, or will you have me spit you where you cower? Come, choose quickly. Death waits for one of us twain tonight, and I am very sure it is not for me. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for suggesting something truly delightful this time. Would you like to tell people what we, what we read this week? Um, yes, so this week we have read uh, Georgette Heyer's Beauvalet, which is a truly remarkable book, and the first uh, Georgette Heyer book that I've ever read. I can't believe this This is the first one that you've read, because I love Georgette Heyer so, so much, and her books are some of my like classic comfort reads when I don't feel like reading or I'm out of practice, and I feel like she is... Someone that I just assume everyone knows and loves, and then I've realised quite recently that that's not actually yeah, true. The thing that is uh, kind of strange, I think, with me as well, is the fact that I I read so much romance. I have read so much romance, and I'm so familiar with the genre. The fact that I haven't read any higher is kind of weird from that standpoint, but I'm very glad to yeah. have made, um, made her acquaintance. Yeah, she is... An amazing writer, and we should start by talking a little bit about her. She was a very prolific writer, mostly publishing in the, well, from the 1920s and 30s onwards, and she published, I think, right up until her death in the 70s. Well, she wrote two books a year, which is... Which is nuts. Insane. But I think there was something about her practice that I think is really interesting. So she wrote one romance book, book every year that she, like, single-authored, and that's just her work. 
And then she also wrote one under a pseudonym uh, that was her husband's name, which was like a sort of a, a collaborative process, which was all, always a detective novel, where he provided the basic plot and like, I suppose, like murder outline or whatever. And then she just wrote it and created the characters and their interactions. And that's amazing. Right. And she, yeah, she wrote so much. So two books every year. And I think the, I looked this up, but like her books, the detective novels, or mystery books sold like twenty thousand copies a year, but the the romances are like literally hundreds and thousands of, of volumes. So I have only read her romances. I've never actually read any of her mysteries, and she's best known for writing Regency romance. So the overwhelming majority of her fiction is set in the first two decades of the nineteenth century. It's usually around Waterloo. There's usually some kind of early Regency political event taking place in the background, whether that's something about George IV or one of the Napoleonic battles or something like that. There's normally like a little bit of setting in in the history of it, which is really delightful. And we should mention, for people who don't know her work, they are remarkably well-researched books. Like the plots tend to hit the same points. For the Regency novels, there's usually sort of a young, naive woman who's normally very, very wealthy, being seduced by, or seducing in turn, the older man who's a sworn bachelor forever. And so she does tend to hit these same kind of notes again and again. Usually there's a nice younger brother who kind of helps as a bit of a plot moppet. Um, But the research that goes into them is quite incredible. So there's the research, but there's also how incredibly influential she was to shape this genre. Because I don't think that the romance genre at all would look the way it does if it wasn't for her because one of the things that she is one of the first people to really do is that like her heroines are almost always really people remark on them being very strange because she wants to marry for love and and that's such a that's just a trope now yeah completely and they're usually sort of like spicy modern women who ride their own horses and you know do bold things and like in a couple of them these very very rich heroines are kind of quite eccentric and that they'll you know do snuff and they'll ride carriages unaccompanied and they're often very bold loud women in a really fun and exciting way and so often they hit the sort of hit the notes of you know she melts his heart and he tames her kind of thing, which are such tropes now. And Haya doesn't invent the romance genre, but I think she's a huge part of why Regency romance still holds so much sway in kind of romantic fiction and historical fiction in particular. Yeah. One of the things that I didn't realise until I started kind of reading up about her is how incredibly private she was. So she didn't do any interviews during her lifetime. She never talked about her work. Um, there are there are really like two sort of main sources for her life, and that one of those is um, the obituary that was published after her death, and the other is an, uh, a biography that's written a few years afterwards. The author of this biography has this really um, great example of this other author, Kathleen Lindsay, who uh, plagiarized uh, Hayer really like quite extensively. And it was when pa- when fans started accusing her of writing like shoddier num shoddy num novels under a different name, that's when she <laughs> like sent a complaint to the publisher, and like outlined the accusations. And one of some of the mistakes that this author had made was that she was using t- terms that Hare had 
used, which, you know, obviously it's fine, but it was just that she had only found them in unpublished manuscripts and unpublished novels. And and mm. um, and she also made references to historical to events that she thought was historical events, but there was stuff that Heyer had invented in earlier novels. <laughs> Which I love so much. Yeah, one of the kind of few details that I really know about Heyer's biography is that she did collect letters and manuscripts and things like that, and she would sort of mine them for material, not necessarily characters, but things like the turn of phrase, descriptions of clothing, that sort of thing, to try and add to this really atmospheric way of writing. So... She would use, yeah, private memoirs, private diaries, letters that hadn't been sort of published or widely circulated that she would just buy up in bulk as a way of finding phrases and terms that were historically accurate, but not necessarily kind of in the mainstream. And it means that her books have quite a distinctive voice to them. And it's a voice that is now like very widely imitated. You know, I think a lot of Bridgerton owes a huge amount to hire, particularly in the way that she like writes and creates these characters. And that's, that's fine. That's how influential she is. But it's also worth mentioning that I think there have been like three adaptations of higher novels ever. One of them was like in Italian or something, and they aren't made into TV series or films or anything like that. I believe this is something to do with her estate. But I think it's also a sign of the fact that she has been so influential and people don't necessarily recognize that she is the source of a lot of this stuff. I didn't know that. I didn't know that there's a few adaptations of her work. That's very interesting. I think I think a lot of people sort of read Georgette Higher and think it's kind of samey or think it's very similar to like all these other things that have been published. And, you know, it's true that sometimes you can't remember <laughs> which one is which because she was so prolific and also that means that sometimes plot elements pop up again and again but i think that also often people forget that she was like writing this really before anyone else was and so yeah she seems kind of formulaic and samey now but that's because she was 50 years ahead of everyone else and now the industry's caught yeah, up now everyone is just doing what she's been doing for like a, almost 100 years now so this is a funny one because this is actually not one of her Regency novels. This is set in about 1586 and you did some you did some snooping to confirm that date. But it's a 16th century one which she did not write very often and it's actually a really early novel. I saw somewhere that she'd actually stopped it being printed. It was it was not widely printed during her lifetime. She didn't like it very much. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. <laughs> and she um she didn't consider it sort of one of her best. She stopped a lot of her earlier novels from sort of being reprinted and republished. And one in particular, which is from 1925, which is called Simon the Cold Heart, which is sort of a precursor to Beauvalet, was one of the ones that she hated the most. And it wasn't actually reprinted until after her death. So these are not typical of her work, but they have a lot of the kind of key components. And it was really fun to read this as something a little bit different to her normal, her normal formula. Can you talk us through the plot? Well, our intrepid heroine, uh, Donna Dominica, is on a ship back from the... Um, the colonies where she has lived I think probably her whole life or her whole sort of at least since she was a small child with her ailing father the captain of the ship they're on they are going back to Spain I should maybe say the captain of the ship they're on sees a ship in the distance who 
uh, they think might be the dreaded pirate Sir Nicholas Beauvillet and attack them. Now, that turns out to be a very, very terrible idea because they immediately, the English obviously immediately win, sink the Spanish ship and he takes uh, Donna Dominica and her father on board the ship and promises to take them to Spain. Uh, And then, which he does, on the journey over to Spain, Donna Dominica and Sir Nicholas Beauvillet fall madly in love. He returns her of course. course. Um, he, this happens in the first like twenty-five pages or something. Like it is, it's it's quite incredible. <laughs> the first time they meet, she pulls a dagger on him, and like three pages later, she's fully in love. Yeah, she seems to do <laughs> nothing but uh, flirt with his second in command, and like like ignore him until she is suddenly madly in love with him. And there is not very much like transition between those two. They have like three conversations. Not much happens. But he loves her from the very beginning. (laughs) He is completely smitten. And, you know, he is, you know, a dashing pirate who's kind of Stockholm syndromed her a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, she goes to Spain. Her father dies. She is the ward of her aunt. And then it is for the rest for like the rest the other 200 pages or so it is just like a really fun caper through spain where he like impersonates a a french spy to go to the court in madrid and interacts with all of these people and then like liberates her and fights his way out of prison it is excellent it's truly delightful. So most of the plot is about Nick Beauvalet in disguise in Spain, gallivanting around, trying to rescue Dominica so that he can bring her back to England and they can get married. Because in the space of a couple of weeks on a ship, they've fallen madly in love. And the kind of, the romance is not the point in a way, which is interesting. So many of Georgette Heyer's other books Not much happens, but it's about the kind of slow burn of the romantic relationship between the hero and the heroine. Whereas in this case, we sort of skip all the romance and it's all about the drama and action, which is different to her normal work and actually makes it quite, quite fun um, because it's not about the relationship so much as all the kind of antics that everyone is getting up to in the meantime. So this is, they have been on the ship uh, for a couple of weeks at this point. She's like, she keeps like pulling daggers at him um, and that kind of stuff. She tried to look witheringly upon him, but it seemed to have no effect. You are the declared enemy of all Spaniards, Signor, and well I know it. But I have in mind, sweetheart, to make an English woman of you, said Beauvillet, frankly. She was fairly taken aback. She gasped, flushed, and clenched her little hands. Now where's that dagger? said Beauvillet watching her in some amusement. She flounced round upon her heel and swept away to the poop. She was outraged and speechless, but she could still wonder whether he would follow. She need have been in no doubt. He let her gain the poop, out of sight of his men, and came up with her there. He set his hands on her shoulders and twisted her round to face him. The teasing light went out of his eyes, and his voice was softened. Lady, you called me a mocker, but for once I do not jest. Here, my solemn promise. I will make you an Englishwoman before a year is gone by, and so seal my bond. He bent his handsome head quickly and kissed her lips before she could stop him. 
She cried out indignantly, and her hands flew to avenge the insult. But he had her measure, and was ready for the swift reprisal. She found her hands caught and imprisoned, and his face close above hers, smiling down into her angry eyes. "'Will you rate me for a knave, or pity me for a poor mad fellow?' said Sir Nicholas, teasing again. "'I hate you!' she said, and spoke with some passion. "'I despise you, and I hate you!' And then, like... <laughs> literally, like, the next chapter, he is like, "'I love you. You can't come and get me in Spain. This is uh, awful. Like, um, I will miss you forever.'" It's, it's, it's so funny. And the kind of broader historical context of this, of course, is that he is an English privateer and she, as a Spaniard at the time, they are on opposite sides of this kind of long simmering conflict between England and Spain in the 1580s. He is raiding Spanish ships and kind of attacking Spain and kind of privateering and essentially pirating Spanish vessels in service of the British crown, which is what a privateer is. It's kind of a licensed pirate. And she sort of, as a loyal Spanish citizen, is torn about her feelings, but very, very quickly <laughs> overcomes them. And there's a convenient little religious twist here as well. Yeah. Uh, in my in the margins of my books, I wrote uh, Deus ex machina uh, Lutheranism, where he finds her <laughs> translation of the Bible and realises that she, being Spanish, is actually you know, has these, like, has these leanings towards Protestantism, uh, which mm. makes Spain quite dangerous to her. And it happens mm. really quickly, and it's never really touched on again. Um, it's just a, a thing that's sort of mentioned. Um, it's not a major plot point, but it's just... It's... No, but it pops up whenever someone wants to threaten her, where they're like, oh, yes, but we all know you're a secret Protestant and there is a holy inquisition going on. And and it's never really explained or gone into, but she has somehow, in the course of her time in what is now the Dominican Republic in the Spanish colonies, uh, discovered Lutheranism and gotten really into Protestant religion. And it's just a funny little convenient aside that, that means that she's quite happy to assimilate into Englishness. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was... The thing is, it made a lot of... It kind of had to be there. Otherwise, none of the rest of the book would yeah, make sense. Completely. Um, so I was I was really fine with it. And it was explained in a really fine way. But what's quite jarring in the rest... Or not really... Not jarring, because the characters are really believable. And I, you know, the story moves along swiftly. But uh, it's kind of strange, as soon as you start thinking about it, is how little religion is mentioned or discussed... Except for Nick, Nicolas Beauvalet disguises himself as a Frenchman with the help of a French cousin, gets into Spain, pretending to be a Frenchman on tour, accidentally murders a French spy, <laughs> takes his identity and ends up at the court of Philip II in Madrid. And through a series of dramatic, you know, revelations and disguises and hijinks, is eventually arrested because the captain of the ship that he had originally taken Dominica and her father from has survived and shown up in Madrid and recognises him at a party. So Beauvalet is arrested and thrown in prison. And there is a scene where 
Philip II and his advisors are discussing how they should deal with him. And they talk about the kind of religious context here, and it's one of the only places that it's really mentioned. And they talk about the fact that, you know, the Beauvalet family were Catholic not so long ago, so he could probably get his way through a mass if they tried to use that as a test. And it's interesting because it's the one time you really see a conversation about, like, the religious tension that's simmering away in the background. Despite the fact that the spying that Beauvalet has ended up accidentally doing has a major religious component to it. Yeah, well, there's another time as well, and that's when he, uh, when Beauvalet is like on his way in to see Philip II for the first time, he walks through this corridor and there's all of these uh, pictures of martyrs on the walls and he kind of winces a little mm. bit. Um, yeah. uh, Which is so yeah, funny. And, and it's like a really, it's just a very funny moment. And there's another bit as well where the uh, someone is bringing the news that to this to Philip II that they have uh, caught Beauvalet on Spanish ground and he makes them wait while he finishes his prayers mm. and I think but other than that so it's just so it's primarily used as a way to mark how like the Spanish are really different from the English who are just like easygoing and fun and don't like are not bogged down by this like weird religion <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, no, completely. And that's something that we we should talk about as well. The way that England and Spain are kind of treated within the book is very funny. And the religious element is a huge part of that. All of the Spanish characters are constantly, you know, crossing themselves and swearing oaths and being very dramatic and religious and incredibly like campy and over the top. And the English are just sort of very solidly like, we're the right ones. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> you know, there's a many references to Elizabeth I being the Queen of England sort of by God's grace and things like that. And this is interesting. It's a very English book. Obviously, higher is English. This is the context in which it's being written and published. But the kind of English nationalism in it is quite funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think you get Beauvalet especially is really pre presented as this... Um, just like English stereotype, yes. uh, or like very much how I think uh, some subsets of English culture wants to imagine that English, like heroes of the past, behaved. Completely. And you know, this book is published in 1929, it's in a context of a kind of like English identity crisis, I guess. You can call the entire 20th century an English identity crisis, but this particular sort of moment of like, well, what does it mean to be an English hero? And like, how do you have a nostalgic vision of the past that isn't informed by like the political and social anxieties of the time? And it's, it's interesting that Hayek chooses this moment to publish something that is so different to her normal Regency books. There are all these references to how Nicholas is like the perfect Englishman, but also he conveniently has like flawless Italian, Spanish and French and like he's incredibly well travelled and things like that and he's like the ideal gentleman. Yeah, the fact is that he's able to just pass at the Spanish court for a Frenchman means that, you know, his, his, his languages are perfect, which is great. I also, that's actually something that I was wondering about. There are several points in the book where it's really not clear what language people are speaking. 
Obviously, the entire thing is written in English, but there are a couple of references to the fact that Dominica doesn't have great English and she's described as sort of like lisping prettily over these English words, which is so funny. But it's clear that most of their conversations are happening in Spanish and she very occasionally tries to speak in English and sort of slightly embarrasses herself in a really like cute way. And and yeah, this idea that he's able to just sort of perfectly drop in to Spanish and French culture because, oh, you know, those Europeans, they're just so funny and Catholic and that's all he has to do is cross himself a bit and he's absolutely fine. And I, I look, it's a, it's a romance novel. It's not that deep. But when one of the major plot points is the fact that he as an Englishman cannot enter Spain at the time because there's no English ambassador to Spain, you know, they are essentially at war. It's funny that he's never at risk of being discovered by being too English. Yeah, yeah. Like, the, the, the reason someone discovers him is because he is, like, because they've literally met him before. There's no... Yeah, like, right. I think the Spanish ambassador, the, the French ambassador does question if this is really the right guy and he, like, sends a message to ask for the description of the um, Chevalier... Geese, I think his name, the, the person mm. he's impersonating. Mm. But that's mostly because he doesn't look right. It's because, you know, he's got, he's tall with dark, he's tall, dark and handsome rather than sort of wispy and blonde like he's supposed to be. And he looks too old yeah. for that part. No one ever trips him up on like his language or his kind of understanding of protocol. And it's funny that when one of the major kind of like plot points of the book is like, these days you get thrown <laughs> in jail just for saying you're English. <laughs> You don't actually have any kind of risk of that. Yeah, but that's because he didn't have, like, uh, they hadn't invented spam yet. So he doesn't, like... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's very funny. Let's talk about the way that Spain is represented, like, more broadly. There's a lot of talk about how bad the roads are, which is hilarious. Uh Yeah, from, like... I mean, obviously, this is, you know, before... Not not present day England. It's not written in present day England because you don't think you could say that anything like that any country in the world has worse worse roads than here. But um, yeah, like they're just complaining about how many sheep there is uh, and how terrible it is, and it's too hot. It's too dry. Oh, yeah, it is too hot during the day, and that it gets too cold at night. <laughs> and they're all just so so whiny about like the roads have potholes and it's dusty and it's not fair and despite the fact that like one of the major character points of these english people is supposedly that they're able to take everything without complaint they spend so much time just being little bitches about spanish roads yeah yeah and and like about how the inn that they're staying in is like up to snuff <laughs> it's really very English tourists on holiday kind of vibes in a very funny way. Yes. But did you also notice, like, so when uh, the Dominica is talking to her aunt, who is, like, hands down one of the best villains that I have ever encountered in a book. Oh, she's amazing. She's so good. Her name is Donna Beatrice, and she's the one who sort of takes uh, guardianship of, of Dominica after her father's death and, and is really, yeah, she's a villain, but she's fucking fantastic she's like so cool and in a lot of ways quite an ambiguous yeah she's constantly like you know just get married to your cousin so we get your money but you can just take a lover just take a lover later on just go have just just go have affairs that's what i've been doing for years and her like she she rules that household with an iron fist her her husband and her son just do whatever she says 
and it's excellent. And uh, Donna Dominica is complaining to her that she doesn't want to get married to her cousin, all of this stuff, uh, you know, quite rightly, and just saying, like, you just want my possessions. And uh, Beatrice says that, you know, we need to have your money because we don't have any of our own. Dominica looked round at the opulence of the room. One does not immediately perceive your poverty, signora. No, certainly not, said Donna Beatrice. We all maintain a good appearance, but show me the man who is not impoverished today for all of his outward pomp. I think, said Dominica forcibly, that Spain is a hateful country, and the people corrupt. Very corrupt, agreed Donna Beatrice. An age of loose living. I remember when I was a girl, a Spanish lady was the model of decorum. It's all become very different now, and much more amusing. <laughs> it's so funny, and so, like, thinly veiled. There are all these references to the fact that, you know, Dominica is going to become an Englishwoman, and, and it's fine, and, like, it's just this accident of birth that's made her Spanish. And the kind of, like, the weird nationalism of it is really hilarious to me, honestly. And this kind of comes into like... that as well. This is just uh, what... Um... Donna Beatrice says to her son when he is, like, being annoying. Uh, no, she said, not troubling to open her eyes. You lack the habit of thought, I believe. I wish you would leave me. You disturb my siesta to no purpose that I can see. She's so fucking great. She's so, so great. I love her. She spends most of the book, like, lying back with her eyes closed, fanning herself, just being a stone-cold bitch, and it's incredible. Yeah. There is something, like, quite... Like, the way she's described, because she's described as being, like, a larger woman and being quite fat, and there is something quite, like, not great about that depiction, yeah. because it seems like it. it there is a, definitely, like, a, a connection between her appearance and her villainry, but I mm. love her a lot. Yeah, and that's something that, like, it's it, it pops up a couple of times in, in Haya's books. You know, her heroines are always, like, perfectly thin and delicate and wispy. And, you know, they're always sort of tall enough and strong enough to ride horses, but they're beautiful and willowy. And often there's a tension because they're not sort of, like, quite petite and dainty enough. But they're still sort of, like, slender and striking. And Dominica is very much, like, in that mould. Her first description, she's described as... um. Backed against the walls, with her hands laid along the panelling to either side of her, stood a lady. A lady all cream and rose and ebony. Cream her skin and rose her lips. Ebony the lustrous hair confined under a net of gold. Her eyes were dark and large under languorous lids. Her brows delicately marked. The nose short and proud. The full lips curved and ripe. She's like, she's perfect. And, and the presence of female characters who are seen as kind of like somehow physically imperfect usually they're sort of like fatter or larger than the heroine they often end up being the kind of like nasty manipulative ones and then usually there's the kind of like jolly plump matron who comes and like helps people out and in one of Haya's regency novels that I've read there is a recurring plot point about how the one of the grandmothers of one of the main characters is um considered sort of socially unacceptable in part because she is unfashionably large and sort of is treated as a bit of a social outcast for that reason despite the fact that she's one of the richest women in the book so the body image of of characters in in Hire's novels is like very 
very imperfect. Um, and yeah, the, the point about Donna Beatrice being sort of larger and languid and, and things like that is definitely a part of her characterization. Often the sort of villainous men in Hire's books are the sort of twinky little wispy teenagers. And I find that really interesting as well, that they're not kind of masculine mm-hmm. enough. And, and that's what often the kind of root of their villainy is that they're not the sort of like hot, handsome, older men that the heroines fall for. Yeah, I think that's definitely a thing that plays out throughout this book that um, our hero, Beauvalet, is constantly like um, leaning casually against things. Uh, he's laughing all the time. He's very physically active as well. He's always like vaulting over things and jumping out windows and like he's, he's you know, prime masculine specimen. Whereas Dominica's cousin, the man that she's supposed to marry for his money, is this like wispy, vain little <laughs> fancy boy in a velvet suit. Yeah, and, and even like Philip II is um, this like sort of pale husk of a man who's just like spends his time praying Mm. And but all the Englishmen are like spoiling for a fight and yes, they're all robust and rugged and and ready to go and 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 that brings us on quite nicely to some of the historical figures that pop up as little cameos in the book, which are really interesting. Obviously, we've mentioned Philip II comes up as a character. Um, Elizabeth I has a couple of appearances. There are also a number of cameos from other sort of privateers and explorers who are, you know, significant kind of peers to Beauvalet. Francis Drake, Walter Raleigh, all of the Hawkins families, notably Sir John Hawkins, William Cavendish, um, Walsingham, who is the Queen's sort of spy master, Christopher Hatton as well, who's a really important noble in the court of Elizabeth. And these are the sort of powerful men who surround Beauvalet. He's actually mentioned as being one of the people on Drake's ship during the circumnavigation, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, but he she really places him in this milieu as an equal to Drake mm. and as like mm. someone who works directly with Francis Walsingham as well, um, which I thought was really interesting. It is, because... Often in her later novels, and especially in the Regency ones, you sort of have real historical people popping up as background characters. They don't tend to be very prominent. They get sort of off-scene descriptions and things like that. There are a couple of notable exceptions that include, like, George IV, Beau Brummel. Some of the major, like, British military and political figures of the time do occasionally pop up. But generally speaking, she focuses on, like, high society rather than real people. And so it was interesting that there were so many sort of real names in this one. Drake especially, because there are a couple of mentions of the fact that Drake is sort of lower class than Beauvalet, and Beauvalet is the nobleman, and he's the sort of really like dashing and fancy one. And you know, Drake is the hero, but he doesn't have the kind of like class and status that Beauvalet has. Yeah, there is this, I don't know if you've heard this story, but there's a story about uh, Francis Drake, about when the um, Spanish Armada is sighted in 1588, that he apparently was in the middle of playing bowls, and uh, the Spanish Armada is sighted, someone tells him, and he goes, oh yes, we have plenty of time, we have time enough to finish this round of bowls. And then they do that, and and then he goes and, like, you know, they go and defeat the Spanish Armada. Mm. And uh, that is only, like, the first instance of that being reported, like, 30, 40 years after it's supposed to have happened. So it's obviously, like... 
Right. Not, it's obviously a myth that's made up as an act of English nation building. But uh, I feel like that is, this entire character of Bobelet is just like that event or that that particular story spun out into being yes. an entire novel. Because he spends that, he spends the entire book never worried uh, he's always sure that is going to work out, and I, I feel like there's a real connection between that that kind mm. of story about Drake being like really cavalier about the events, and then going on to defeat the Spanish Armada yeah. with um, Beauvais being like found out in the middle of a ball in Spain that he is accused of being this um, English privateer that everyone just wants to kill. Uh, and being like, oh, this is fine. I'll just, I'll just escape my prison. <laughs> yes, absolutely. The kind of like inc- supremely chill attitude towards every event is such a kind of like folkloric feature of the way that Drake is described, but also particularly like the the mythologization of so called golden age Elizabethan England and this idea that it's a kind of like time of heroes is something that like by the 1920s is so firmly established. And this is the context that High is writing in, right? It's this very nostalgic view of the sort of dashing Shakespearean heroes who are noble and perfect and, you know, constantly getting into scrapes, but they're just always in control. And that is such a trope that that Beauvalet really embodies. He is he is never worried, and like wreck not is the motto that he keeps coming out with, which literally means like, don't be concerned, don't be afraid. And and so there's this really like interesting performance of casualness in his character. Yes, and I think that's one of the things that kind of sets this apart from a lot of modern romance novels, in that like in a, in in any romance novel you'll find there is like a covenant between the author and the reader where there will be a happily ever after and if you don't do that then there won't be um, then it's not no longer a romance novel but mm-hmm. you very rarely i find get this complete lack of peril where absolutely uh, like he's never he never feels like he's in danger the only times we experience that he, they there might be any danger or like feel scared or worried about him is through the eyes of his um valet or man whatever we call him uh, yes. joshua or uh dominica like they're the only ones he is just mm. sure that everything will be fine and it's interesting because there is peril but no one ever takes it seriously <laughs> like he is he is in a spanish prison <laughs> he is at, about to be investigated by the Holy Inquisition, like he is an Englishman in Spain. <laughs> it is a bad time to be an Englishman in Spain. She is about to be shipped off and married to her horrible cousin, and everything is going to go terribly, terribly wrong. And yet everyone is just like, eh, it's fine, it's chill, whatever. And and that is, it's funny because like even though I would say eighty percent of this novel is like hijinks, it's like escapades and running away and like what keeps happening <laughs> is that everyone's just like it'll be fine whatever it's chill and and it means that like it's simultaneously like really tense and really relaxed especially especially him like you know he's about to face off face off with six spanish soldiers uh but he's just fine it's not gonna be a problem he just doesn't he just doesn't care he's just like so calm about the whole thing it's quite incredible but yeah i think that i think his behavior really mimics a lot of the kind of myths that we have about 
um, like the kind of early English heroes, like Drake in particular. There's something I think worth discussing about the the genre that this fits into. And I wanted to talk about the kind of character of swashbucklers, which is a, a trope really that, that um, is very common sort of from the 1920s onwards. And it, it becomes a recurring feature of film and literature, but especially film around the time that Hire is writing this. So the kind of swashbuckler character, he's normally a gentleman. He's normally a little bit dandyish. He normally has an affected character of not caring or being sort of frivolous. And under that, he's actually like a hardened soldier who's super competent and like hyper-masculine. Probably the best example of this type of character is the Scarlet Pimpernel. And that is published in 1905. It's something that's definitely like in the background of Beauvalet. And I think actually the fact that he's like sneaking into Spain is quite a direct reference to the character in the Scarlet Pimpernel, sort of like undercover in France and things like that. And the idea that you are an Englishman in disguise to carry out these incredible feats of, of spycraft is something that, especially after the First World War, becomes even more of a dominant narrative. There are other kind of prominent examples. One of them is a book called Captain Blood, which is written in 1925. These are all set mostly in the 18th or 19th centuries. They're much later than Beauvalet, but there is still this kind of character in the background of like the dashing gentleman, spy slash soldier slash adventurer. And Beauvalet really fits into that category in the way that he is able to be sort of the smart, fancy, decadent man who who is going to balls and being beautiful. And like one of the recurring plot points is that he keeps losing these incredibly expensive and fancy pieces of clothing. <laughs> Much to the consternation of his poor, poor uh, friend and valet, uh, Joshua. And, and yet, at the same time, he's like this brilliant soldier who everyone is terrified of because he's sort of a devil. And the way that they refer to him as El Beauvalet, like, oh, the terrifying, oh, the Beauvalet, <laughs> reminded me a lot of the way that, like, the Scarlet Pimpernel exists as this sort of folk hero, even within his own story. Um, so I thought it was interesting that that's a kind of genre that's going on in the background. Obviously, until the 1930s and beyond, these are also characters that show up in film and they tend to be played by actors like Errol Flynn and Douglas Fairbanks who play all of these characters and, you know, play people like Robin Hood as well, who are very much within the same sort of milieu. And so Beauvalet as a swashbuckler is really interesting. The fact that he is like a pirate, but he's a good guy pirate. Yeah, I think like I, when I was reading this, I very much imagined like the character was played by like an Errol Flynn type that's what I saw in my mm, head. Completely. Uh, through and I did not realise that the Scarlet Pimpernel was came out in nineteen oh five. Like I thought it was much earlier. I just re I read that when I was a child and I loved it so much. And I think it has like put these um, image of um, the spy, mm. like the noble spy, completely. like the the one that commits crimes for the good of, um, like you know in the in all of these cases like the english crime right. essentially and like nobility but uh you know like the hero the hero criminal yeah completely um, and especially the fact that like people don't necessarily take him seriously because they think he's just this like dandyish man on holiday and things like that is such an interesting trope the idea of this kind of like performance of of frivolousness being what enables these men to get away with it and it's like worth pointing out that 
the Scarlet Pimpernel, obviously the enemy is France, but a lot of the kind of like French context of it is that they're also like bumbling and foolish that they can't catch him and he's this brilliant genius but also he's fighting idiots and that's very much one of the tropes that comes up with the the treatment of the spanish in in Beauvalet. he's always like swinging out of windows and trapping people in closets and that's really funny yeah yeah he he's the one like they run into the room to corner him and he like hides behind the door and exactly quite exactly excellent um <laughs> But there is this tension, I think, between him being a, an excellent captain and all of his men love him and support him and would die for him in, in an instant. And also, because he's a nobleman, he's able to fit in seamlessly in mm. these uh, upper echelons of society. So um, it's, it's, there's, there's real like duality to him um, that I think is kind of presented as being unique to not only his nationhood but also to his like social class definitely and that like the idea of him as the gentleman is so important to this that he's always got the perfect beautiful clothes and he's always like perfectly presented and even when in the first scene when he attacks the spanish ship he is you know he's got a cape he's got his flawless beard he's like this beautiful handsome man he's got his jeweled dagger at his belt but the english people are always talking about how he's you know too european because he went on his grand tour and he's affected this italianate style of fighting and it's very interesting to see the way that like nationality is used and that he is kind of some kind of brilliant chameleon but also he never loses his Englishness, no matter how much people might be concerned that he's becoming, you know, too Italian because of the style of rough that he wears. He's always, you know, a good English <laughs> hero at heart. The um, scenes with Elizabeth I are quite funny. She is like the absolute caricature, like surface level, like she's swearing, she's angry, she's bitching about the fact that he's finally got married. <laughs> she's just like in a bad mood the whole time. And it's it's a very specific kind of representation of her that that is so like, so pervasive in popular culture. But it's also really interesting, I think, because she is presented as being like quite young and like active and um, not like not like virile in like the sort of but just like full of yes. life and it's such a um uh the duality of her and philip ii who's just this like weird husk of a man who is um you know and at this point so this is set in um 1568 and it's 10 years earlier i think is when elizabeth um like ascends to the throne after her sister who was married to philip mm-hmm. ii mm-hmm. so like i think i think Heyer really like assumes that we know about this so when we so that these two characters are really presented as opposites of each other um one is you know young younger and female and you know quite like like engaged and always seem to be you know she's always like either leaving meetings or attending meetings or having her like um her court assembled around her and she's like she's like a little bit sexy as well and the fact that she's always complaining about these young men getting married and she's really resentful and jealous of dominica when she's eventually presented to her there is this kind of presence of her as like having a bit of a sexual appetite even though she is by this point like quite firmly established as not sort of sexually present Compared to Philip, who's always praying. 
Yeah, exactly. So you have this like, so but he's not even like engaged in matters of state. Mm-hmm. Like he's someone is coming to say like an enemy of Spain has been apprehended on Spanish soil. What are we gonna do with him? And he's like, wait a minute, I'm gonna finish this rosary. Right, completely. And that's, I mean, that's that's a cliche. That's such a classic way of representing Elizabeth. But it's interesting that it's done with Philip as well, because usually when you have these representations of of Elizabeth and of the sort of like English-Spanish conflict at this time, you don't really see the Spanish side of things. At least in the media that I'm aware of, it tends to be very, very focused on England and the idea of like Spain as this threat somewhere else. Whereas because this is about privateering, they have to include Spain in a more profound way. You can't just pretend it's happening somewhere else. You're actually acknowledging the fact that like there's English piracy going on in this kind of context, which I think is interesting and a little unusual. Yeah, I don't know of any other instances of it. There's a bit in it that I was like, that I think is the bit where we can like place it in history. Essentially, the story here is that um, Beauvalet is waiting for uh, an answer. So he's delivered a letter from the, I think it's the Guise, um family to Philip II in a, in a, in a code. And he is like, you know, decoded it and he's waiting for a response. If Philip delayed too long, however, he would have to employ another messenger to carry his answer back to the Guise. Sir Nicholas would be very well pleased to get that answer into his own hands, for it promised to be interesting to an English Protestant. Walsingham would be glad of it, but Sir Nicholas had no notion of serving Master Secretary to his own plan's undoing. There was food enough for Walsingham in the Guise's ciphered letter, a copy of which was safe in Beauvalet's possession. It concerned one Mary Stuart, unfortunate lady, at present a state prisoner in England, and certain illuminating schemes for her future as compiled by His Majesty King Philip and the Duke de Guise. Fine doings there, enough to make Master Secretary's hair stand on end. For the rest, Sir Nicholas went junketing about the town, and, by the way, gleaned some useful information likely to interest not only Walsingham, but Sir Francis Drake, too, and not less the Lord Admiral Howard of Effingham. There was a fleet building in Cadith Harbour. Sir Nicholas made copious mental notes of the size and strength of those tall galleons, and even toyed with the notion of travelling south to sea for himself. The, the, the letters is clearly the Babington plot, uh, where... Um, Mary Stuart has been locked up and all of her letters gets opened and read uh, by Walsingham and his men and they devise a way for her to send letters through uh, I think it's like a, a a barrel of beer that she thinks is is safe for her to send letters but turns out they, they open and read all of them and it's on the basis of the letters that she sends that she is then accused of treachery and executed in the next year and the sacking of Cadiz which is uh, what Drake does in 1588 right yes Uh, of course so I think it's just as so that entire paragraph I think it's like just an easter egg for if you like know about this time of history or if if you kind of go and look it up you get this like oh right this stuff happened this is real yeah completely and there are a couple of references you know as well about the fact that you know the, the British have been, the English have been in conflict with 
King Philip, you know, Englishmen had a lively hatred of Spain induced by a variety of causes. There was, many years ago, the affair of Sir John Hawkins, an instance of Spanish treachery that would not soon be forgotten. <laughs> there was the grim persecution at work in the Low Countries, which must make any honest man's blood boil. And there are several references as well to, like, the Spanish colonies in the Indies. Hawkins, it's worth mentioning, is one of the first English slave traders <laughs> because he's capturing Spanish vessels and taking the enslaved people on board not to free but to sell for profit. He is then sponsored and funded by Elizabeth I, Drake, Raleigh, Walsingham, all of these people are involved in it. And he is one of the characters that sort of pops up as a real figure a couple of times. So like, this is all kind of real context and Hire assumes that we know it or that it's not sort of important enough to go into a huge amount of detail around. And I do think it's interesting that the kind of romantic representation of like the Spanish Armada, Francis Drake, all of these sort of English adventurers is something that she takes for granted that her audience are familiar with because it's not necessarily as obvious to readers today. Yeah, definitely. But I also think it kind of functions as a way of justifying uh, English imperialism yes. through all these different ways. And and also that section just there about the Babington plot and about like the sacking of, or the events that are leading up to the sacking of Cadiz, it just assumes that Mary Stuart was an active participant and that her execution was necessary mm. and because the, like England was under threat. And I think there is quite a lot of debate about like what was actually happening or if she was um, entrapped yeah. in that. And there is a certain level of whitewashing of all of these characters because they're not just like there's no discussion about, you know, what happened in Ireland or what happened. And like, right, this is a romance novel and you can't necessarily go into like all the ills of like imperialism and colonialism. But by presenting these real people as like benevolent side characters, they're really supporting this idea of that this is like the universal or objective facts of history and that she's playing around with them rather than being interpretations of historical events. Yeah, completely. And that's and that's a really like interesting thing to be aware of as well. The fact that, yes, this is a romance novel. Yes, this is not like a historical text, but it tells us so much about how Haya's audience in the 20s saw these events and the kind of like sentimental nationalism surrounding them. The idea of England as this kind of like benevolent force, particularly the kind of romanticizing of Elizabeth I, I think is a really profound thing to be aware of here. And, you know, many of these people go on to be like founding figures in the East India Company. They go on to be really important in the creation of British colonies in the Caribbean, in the Americas, things like that. They are some of the establishing figures of the British slave trade. And the fact that that doesn't even like warrant a mention is insightful, shall we say, into how these figures are kind of historically interpreted and how we see them. And I think there's still like a lot of joy to be gained from something like Beauvalet, as long as you read it and recognise that, like, even the historical figures that pop up, like, are pure fiction. Yeah, and I think it's very easy because Hare did such great work mm. on, like, making details, like, forms of address, and uh, apparently she had a 
like in her notebook she kept notes on things like the cost of candles during particular years so that there's so many details that are really really accurate but that the larger picture is so influenced by ideology that that you have to kind of pick that apart a little yeah, bit completely and and yeah and that's the thing is that you know it's so like atmosphere rich in the way that she describes costumes in particular like the way that Haya describes clothes is like absolutely unreal and half the time I don't even fully understand every word that she's using to describe them because it's all about like specific types of fabric and like the cut of the hessian boots and like the way that they've been polished and things like that and there are always like very specific things and all of her regency heroes have their own like signature way of tying a cravat that's always like their like calling card in society and things like that and like obviously in Beauvalet it's all about his like gold tipped pants i think i'm not really sure oh and like the 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 width and height of his ruffs yeah completely and like there's so much detail that goes into the sort of aesthetic atmosphere of these books that is just like unbelievably delightful the way that she describes fabric describes costume describes how people kind of present and perform themselves is amazing she gets huge amounts of detail right in terms of like the cost of things the way that people sort of see and spend money the way that people speak to each other and a lot of this comes from the fact that she's using original sources that that often aren't like widely available and so she's doing this huge amounts of original resource research to create these novels and obviously i don't know how different her approach to these kind of other historical novels were but certainly in her regency romances the amount of detail that goes into kind of perfect atmosphere is incredible and you have to take like simultaneously this beautiful accuracy and also this like completely invented character history context even when people have the same names as a real person they are a fictional character she's never pretending to be historical in that sense she's never pretending to be a historian she's she's very accurate she's very detailed she's very careful but she never presents herself as a historian and i do really appreciate that yeah and i think that there is uh so much enjoyment to get out of these books but just to kind of bear that in mind when we're reading it and like i don't think anyone is reading beauvalet as a way of being like so what actually happened in spain in 1586 and like people aren't necessarily sort of taking this seriously or on face value but it is still worth pointing out the kind of gaps in the story that's true but i think what what i do think people do is that you um like no one reads it and thinks this is historically accurate but what you might do is read things and think oh well and kind of internalize it in your memory and then you have like this idea of drake being this um you know like uh, fun and easygoing guy who was a hero Mm. and you know, not someone who died of dysentery and, you know, furthered British colonial interests. That's the thing, is that, like, historical romance and historical fiction of this type is amazing for atmosphere. And I am sure I'm not the only person who will often read something set in the era that they're researching just to kind of, like, pick up on the vibes and the atmosphere of it. However, it is also kind of sneaky and and it does kind of <laughs> you get you get sucked into this and for me mostly like this is an amazing representation of how english people in the 1920s saw themselves and saw their history and saw like kind of approaches to nationalism particularly versus europe in a way that's really interesting and really insightful and and yeah this tells us just as much about like early 20th century 
England and Spain as it does about late 16th century England and Spain. This is really fun. And like, I would highly recommend anyone who is interested in, you know, historical fiction more broadly. Anyone who's read Georgette Heyer's Regency novels and hasn't read one of her earlier ones as well. Like, this is a fun one. Um, For the kind of like pure quantity of romp, I would say also like the way that Beauvalet is is so tropey as a kind of like dashing swashbuckling hero is really funny. And you can see the way that he kind of overlaps with figures like Robin Hood, like the Scarlet Pimpernel, like these other kind of like dashing pirate types that are popping up in fiction around the same time. And I think that's really delightful. It's definitely not my favorite hire. I think her Regency stuff is often better because it's an era that she's kind of like more immersed in and she doesn't try and do the sort of like real historical events as much, which I prefer personally. Um, Although she does do some great like examples. An infamous army is like a rare example of someone taking actual events and making them brilliant. It's her version basically of Vanity Fair. Um, It all takes place around the Battle of Waterloo and like the nights before and after and it's brilliant. But there's a lot to be said for the fact that she tends to go for kind of like society atmosphere rather than historical like specificity in her other novels that I do actually really appreciate. Um, Yeah, to have that to, I think she's often very interested in that sort of tension between like high society tensions rather than real events. Yeah, she Uh, fits in the same kind of way that like Jane Austen is writing a society novel, right? And I think that the genres that Hire is referring to and reflecting on are very much that kind of like everyone just goes to each other's houses and drinks tea kind of tension and drama <laughs> rather than like pirates on the high seas kind of thing. It's not her strong point. This is delightful. Read some of her yeah. other stuff is my kind of like concluding thought, I think. Yeah, my I think my concluding thought is that I can't wait for... It'll be 2044, I think, when her um, the copyright on these books expires. And that's when we can finally fi- get the reimagining or the story about Joshua Dimmock uh, uh, where he gets his happily ever after. Because throughout this book, it is so clear that he is madly in love with uh, Sir Nicholas Beauvillet. And I can't wait for him to get, you know, a story that's about him and him like falling in love with someone yeah. else and <laughs> getting to die um, in his bed. Joshua is such a delightful yeah. character in this and like is a great example of just how well Haya does side characters. Often there's a kind of like slightly foppish, foolish younger brother or servant or someone who kind of like conveniently pops up to move the plot along and that sort of thing. And Joshua Dimmock is a prime example of this. He's so good. He's always swearing and cursing and complaining about the Spanish and he talks too much and he's like rough and mannerless and and Beauvalet spends most of the novel just throwing insults at him which is also very very funny because you get some like overly coloured overly dramatic mock Elizabethan insults which I love. Yeah it's great. And um, yeah it's just it's just delightful and he's a really delightful character in it and you know, Dominica and Beauvalet, they're fine. They're whatever. Dominica doesn't have much to her. Beauvalet is kind of a frolicking, piratey, plot-armoured guy, which is nice enough in its own way. Um, but yeah, Joshua is the real hero of this story because he spends most of the book kind of finding horses and complaining about shirts being ruined. And I love him. <laughs> yeah, he does some brilliant monologues and without him, this book just wouldn't work at all. And like, they're like the relationship between him and Beauvillet is really fun as well. 
but yeah, I uh, he's like he's clearly in love it's with it. It's delightful. It's so funny. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Just a quick reminder, you can find us on Twitter at History Friction and on Patreon at Historical Friction. Special thank you this week to my brother for doing dramatic readings from George Ohio's Beauvalet. Thanks, George. You're the best. See you next week. God be my witness, senor. I shall penetrate.